gingivitis has been eroding the gum line of this great nation long enough. We can no longer be a nation indentured. Our very salivation is at stake. There's nothing new about poverty. What is new is that we now have the techniques and the resources to get rid of poverty. But the real question is whether we have the will. You let one ant stand up to us, then they all might stand up. And if they ever figure that out, there goes our way of life. Krusty Krab is unfair. Mr. Krabs is in there, standing at the concession, plotting his oppression. I think that, that the flowers are something inherently disgusting. I mean, are people aware? Basically, it's an open invitation to all the insects and bees come and screw me, you know? I mean, it's... I think that flowers should be forbidden to children. Oh, sure, let's see. I'm an elk, a mason, a communist. I'm the president of the Gay and Lesbian Alliance for some reason. You say that gender is binary, but what about the butchers and fairies? Have no fear, I'm what you call a gender queer. Go to the Bureau of Free Love. It's not like a free love Soviet. Yeah, the bureaucracy. You got, oh, you got to fill out this paperwork. Well, when do I get the free love? No, you got to fill this up and you got to come back next Tuesday. You got to interview one. It's a bureaucracy. But it's free love in the end. What a weasley little liar, dude. What a weasley little liar, dude. Literally lying. Still lying to his audience. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. Not new mics, but new mic connections. Connections are everything sometimes. It's not, the, it's not the equipment. Sometimes it's how it's plugged in. Anyway, we've got some upgrades, uh, some tech upgrades going on here, a new server and whatnot here in the studio. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This is the Three Left Show. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed. Promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Now, I'm always kind of of two minds. Schizophrenic, you could say. About, the, 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 the in my little script here, uh, the curious or the committed. You know, is this show meant for those just getting into things? They have opinions, but they don't really know a lot. Is this an educational program about leftist politics? There's a lot of content out there, podcasts and YouTube videos kind of for that. What there is a lack of, in my eyes, is programs, content are uh, for those who are already really well educated, maybe already already involved in leftist politics, or they're following leftist politics online and that complete mess of toxicity and, uh, and whatever, because, I mean, no one's really organizing in these spaces, it seems. Uh, social media isn't really the tool for that. And, uh, and the quote-unquote left-leaning media, which should just be amplifying the voices of our struggles and our activism and our organizing and our political battles, instead focuses on their own brand loyalty and things like that and who has wronged who, it becomes personalized and... And just uh, ego-driven. It's just really bad. But it's it's emblematic of uh, symptomatic of our overall psychology as Americans, I suppose. 
So I'm going to delve into, just very broadly speaking here, this is not comprehensive, this is not with a background in psychology, uh, though I do have some basic knowledge, like, you know, I passed classes in this, you know. Um, and then the other half, I'll go into relationships, the state of alternative relationships, particularly how people are reacting and those that don't kind of are skewing away from most types of relationships. Is this just an effect of our atomized society growing ever more isolated from each other? Or is it a response to, you know, is it the evolution of, of feminist values, of living purely, not just for yourself, though it sometimes looks that way? I mean, maybe that's the, this is the, this is a, this is more of the show that asks the questions. I'll get into these questions once I get to the topics, I suppose. I don't want to give it away, so as of yet. But I just want to give a tease. The first story I have is from Endemonia, which I've read before. Usually this is an outsider's perspective on American culture. And it's important to maybe point out, I watched a nice video, a guy who was talking about, you know, love of Japanese culture. You know, I'm an anime fan as well. Not a weeboo, which is like a super fan, obsessed, geeky, but I'm a nerd. And he was talking about the difference between the material culture and the unmaterial culture. That you can really like the material culture, the products, the things you buy, and the things that are bought and sold, commercialized. And the unmaterial culture that maybe produced it is could it be separated? But like the the culture of like theories of disease, um, the work, how work is valued or looked at, family structures, what is considered traditional and untraditional, all of the different cultural attitudes that we can kind of as radicals or as outsiders complain about. Maybe they're exclusionary. Maybe they are oppressive to certain groups or everyone to a certain degree, and we all just kind of go with it because it works to some basic level. And we're all kind of surviving, but a lot of us aren't. So as long as some people are dying prematurely, you know, as long as we have suicides, it, it's kind of an a sign that something is wrong. Hmm. So this title um, is from December 2020 uh, when, you know, we didn't have the rollout of the vaccines yet, and it was really, and we had our second hump of uh, COVID cases. So, and you had a lot of people who were just so fed up and sick and tired of being cooped up and thinking about society and everyone else's health. Now, I want to get a haircut. I want to get a coffee. And, you know, I don't, wearing a mask is an inconvenience. Thus, uh, the title is, Are Americans Psychopaths? What else explains America's bizarre, shocking indifference to everything that matters? Now, this isn't a serious psychology story or article. Uh, this is the first, I'm opening with this because it's the more tongue-in-cheek but it speaks to more general problems, maybe of a America overall or, or just certain sections, you know, red state America, right wing America, or is it endemic to even, you know, to liberals and even leftists? We need to examine that. Here's a tiny fact, he starts. 300,000 Americans are dead of a preventable lethal illness. That's COVID-19 he's talking about. That's more people that died during World War II in less time. And still, there's an even more millions of Americans who don't appear to care. America is hardly a society pulling together like during a war to fight a common enemy. Well, you know, over our lifetimes, we haven't had to pull together 
to fight a war. War just seems to happen automatically. It's a business. It's something that's in the background. So anyway, this is written by an Umar Hayek, a, um, I think, a Rafi, Iraqi immigrant. But rewind, even to a time before COVID, if you've read my other articles, you know I often say Americans make their kids do active shooter drills just so they can carry their guns to Starbucks. Well, there it is. In the picture above, gun owners actually organized a take-your-gun-to-Starbucks day. Now, I bring this up because there's a difficult question that needs to be asked these days, and you're probably, understandably, not going to like it. So let me begin by trying to avoid asking it. Well, it's pretty because of a rude question. But when the world looks at Americans, it sees people who are really, really different. Like, not just weird, but not right. Something. The world thinks went wrong with these people. Now, generally speaking, an imperialist or anti-imperialist mindset that I have would say, we have the big empire, we're the big imperial power, and that does weird things to our psychology that the rest of the world doesn't have to deal with. It doesn't have to deal with, the, as a right-wing would put it, the responsibility of being America, uh, the world's cop. You know, we're Team America, world police. No one else shoulders the burden that we do. But leftists like me ask the question, why do we have this burden? Why not share it? This global security. And what is the security for exactly? From rogue states that won't follow the law. Well, which law is that exactly? Why is there an inequality of uh, power and the ability to exert violence? You know? One could say that the war starts when one side has an advantage over the other. If everyone, no one has a clear advantage, then the shooting does not start. And this goes for a standoff between a few people, whether it's in a movie or in real life, or between countries. Maybe everyone should have one nuke. Hmm. Americans creep the entire world out by now, make it shudder, give it chills. The world knows that there is nobody, and I mean nobody else, that is quite like them. Now, I don't mean that in a good way. It's important to say that I'm not being negative. I'm just making observations. Americans are renowned the entire world over by now for what can only be described as incredible levels of cruelty, brutality, stupidity, and indifference. Again, that's just an observation, not an opinion, or my opinion. If I don't, and don't believe me, ask your friends. Go from one corner to the other of the globe, and you will hear much of the same perspective, whether it's in France, Canada, China, or Chile. Americans tend to be seen as bullies, fanatics, and maniacs. They are laughingstocks now because they have made fools of themselves. They have too many guns and don't read enough books. They don't seem to care about anything but money, power, sex, and fame. Certainly not the world. Certainly not anything that matters. General goodness, even. Not even each other. And by now, not even themselves. Something is not right with Americans. Something is wrong with them. Now, that is what the world thinks. That is what I hear day in and day out from my non-American friends and colleagues. Hell, even in casual conversations with cab drivers. I don't know if that's a reference to uh, Rod Friedman writing, but anyway. Now Americans of the same and thoughtful kind will object and say, but there are many people in the world like that. And Americans are sorely wrong about that. Most of the rest of the countries of the world, in which people live brutal, violent, and ignorant lives as Americans, where they are, they are dictatorships. They are authoritarian states or theocracies, or all three. People don't seem to want to live that way, in decency, impoverishment, humiliation, being dehumanized, or dehumanizing one another and us exploiting in order to live. They are forced to, against their will to do this. Americans are the only people in the world that seem, well, 
I would not say they, but it seems like they choose to do that. I would say it's not totally a choice. There is our choice to resist it or not. Now they seem to choose it over and over again. What's worse, when you point it out to them, they freak out. And this is where we're kind of maybe talking about more right or centrist leaning Americans. The first kind of American idiot is the right winger who throws a tantrum when you tell them Trumpism is badly self-destructive, especially for themselves. The kind, the second kind is the educated liberal, often the some kind of fine degree who, when you point out that Joe Biden has no real plan or even desire to give Americans a functioning social contract, no Green New Deal, they throw a tantrum too. Americans on both sides, well, of the duopoly, choose to think they are very, very different. And so America is then deeply divided, as the pundits say. In fact, though, America is remarkably homogeneous. Yes, there are some important differences between two sides of the duopoly. Democrats aren't exactly fascist. The GOP puts kids in cages. But neither side, well, the Democrats haven't really let them out, though they've kind of put them in roomier cells, I guess. They're trailers, but they're still locked. <laughs> uh, it's, it's still a camp. Still, still concentration camp. But neither side of them, huge numbers of millions, nor do they support any. They don't support public health care. They don't support public education, it seems. Retirement or child care. It's all something that has to be fought for from below. Uh, that's added by me. All of these things are what we give people, by the way, when we consider and care about them, when we wish them to live in dignity and peace, as well as grace. Neither side in America wants to give everyone much of anything. The question which dominates American politics is, how much should we deny people? An extreme amount or a less extreme amount? How much do we let people suffer intense harm and in a stunted life? A massive amount or a slightly less massive amount? This is the difference that a third-party person like me sees between the two major ones. That is how the, rest of, the entire rest of the world sees it. Make no mistake. Every single one of my friends from every corner of the globe thinks this often in literal terms. They are baffled by America, not just by the Trumpians, but also all those educated Americans who back exactly the same political positions, economic and philosophical as well. Everyone doesn't deserve dignity, a decent life, made of basics, because some people are liabilities. We can't afford those. Even though we're massively rich and powerful, it's as ugly as it sounds, and it's every bit as painfully stupid, too. You hear it every time someone says, an UBI, I don't think that would work. You know, because they would raise prices. Well, true. I respond with talking points about how a socialist platform isn't just about a UBI, of uh, an economic floor based uh, in dollars, but one based on access to housing, food, basics, um, a little bit of culture, a job, you could say, federal job guarantee. Americans on both sides are far, far closer to each other than they are the rest of the world, or the rich world, considering that, when it comes to all these preferences, types of preferences. In Canada and Europe, for example, the sentiment above the basic philosophical position, which both sides, well, both major parties of America share, nobody in society has inalienable or intrinsic worth. Therefore, nobody deserves anything for free, which is how Americans on both sides end up voting against basic social contracts. It's seen as repugnant as it is baffling, as it is mindless, thoughtless, immoral, disgraceful, and foolish. Now, these are indeed Americans who don't think that. There are indeed those who don't think that. It's mostly, you know, 20% that might identify as the left. Or it could be the, uh, you know, 40 to 50% of 
young people, you know, 30 below, who say they would prefer socialism over capitalism. So that's them saying social contract, please. Maybe 10 or 20% are truly disgusted by what their country is. It's even true that most Americans say they want these things, but they never, ever vote for them. For example, Liz and Bernie offered, but Dems chose Biden, who offers little to nothing in the way of basics for all. That just makes them hypocrites and liars. Say certain things to pollsters and then turn around and vote against it because it came down to, gotta be Trump. Trump is bad. Biden is better. Not for my wallet. Here's what it makes me ask. And this question is based on hundreds of conversations with friends and colleagues from around the globe in recent months and years. Watching America spiral out of control and the fascism, hatred, mass death from the pandemic. So the question, the root question is this. Are American psychopaths? Now that might make you chuckle to think. I'm trying to make you mad. I'm not. No, I'm trying to be objective here. Because when I think about what makes a psychopath, it seems to me that Americans are beginning to fit that description altogether too well. Maybe worse, they always have. Discuss a few salient traits, basic traits. They're distinguished by a well-known as being callous, unemotional. That is, they don't seem to feel very much. And they seem to have a striking lack of empathy, lack of regard for others. Isn't all that a really perfect description of Americans as well? At least, say, about half of Americans that you and I know that we might be talking about. If a baffled world had to choose two words to describe Americans, it would be callous and unemotional. How callous could they be? Americans, oh, we Americans. Well, they let their kids be shot in school. Massacre, perhaps, is a better word. Because they think carrying guns to Starbucks is a human right. They make each other big strangers for pennies online for basic medicine, or in the streets. Like insulin, because healthcare isn't a right. They put their own kids into lunch debt, which becomes student debt, which becomes medical debt. As a result, the average American is now impoverished. Because such people grow frustrated and hopeless, and then they erupt in a rage, as social bonds break and old hatreds ignite all over again. They exploit each other working quote-unquote jobs, which basically amount to being a billionaire's henchman, demanding that their neighbors and colleagues pay their debts, which they can't, of course, or else. They dehumanize each other in every imaginable way. Building a culture where pretending to have a perfect life on Instagram is showered with fame. They treat each other like dirt and then go to weird megachurches on Sunday and pretend they're fine and good and moral people. Well, that's just how callous Americans are now. But America is also the original slave state. Yes, the rich world all had a hand in slavery, the European imperialism. But America was a bit different. It literally raided a continent and then shipped slaves across the sea. After that, minorities were segregated. I want you to take a second to imagine the horror of all that for a moment. Imagine being an American slave, ripped away from your parents, maimed when you try to escape, treated like a subhuman. Everywhere you went in society, you were less than an animal. Your children and spouse ripped from you, dying in dignity part of a genocide that has gone on for hundreds of years. How callous is a society like that? So much so that callous is a vast understatement. Words don't do justice. And yet, we don't see it that way. At least Americans don't. Nobody will, like, you know, the Civil War fixed this, made it better. It, it absolved the crime. Nobody will say, wow, we must have been psychopaths to inflict centuries of slavery, genocide, hate, and violence on other people. Because only psychopaths would do such a thing. 
white Americans, and that's a clear term here, white as a social identification, not a physical trait, will apologize for slavery in a kind of abstract way. But I don't know that they really feel any. That brings me to the unemotional. America's what I call the look. The entire rest of the world knows the look, and people reading this from Europe, Latin America, or Asia, wherever, will instantly know what I'm talking about. When you talk to many Americans about something that requires curiosity, empathy, kindness, or intellect, something strange happens. Their eyes go blank. Their jaws lock. Their faces go tight. They're trying to repress feelings. It could be feelings of rage, resentment, maybe guilt. Hey, they're saying, don't talk to me about this. Don't make me feel. Don't make me think. I've been told those are bad things, things that make a person weak. I'm not here to do any of those. What is the American here to do, at least in their own mind, usually unconsciously, sometimes very consciously? Don't make me feel. Don't make me think. I'm here to make money. I'm here to dominate, to win a game of status or consumption, to rub as many others' noses in the dirt as I can by having more than them. By the way, when I deny everyone else's basics, that helps me win the game. And then going to megachurch on Sunday to pretend that they're a good person, a nice person. Some Americans know that intensely. Ivy League kids who take all the education and go to work on Wall Street or Silicon Valley instead of doing a damn thing that matters with their lives. The Beltway pundits in D.C. who think deficits matter more than human life. The gun nut who takes health care away from the ill who think they are somehow inherent believers in Jesus, who's probably weeping for them right about now. Most Americans don't know it. They just don't know that thoughts and feelings are bad or intolerable. Things that must be repressed, the more intense and provocative they are. Intense thoughts and feelings are deeply uncomfortable to Americans because they have been taught that anything but conformity, obedience, submission are dangerous. Do what the boss says. Don't ask any questions. Or you might lose that health care along with your crap job. So when you do ask the American to think or feel something, something intense, but ultimately rewarding, they go blank. They give you dead eyes, a plastic smile or a clenched jaw, being emotional as they can. Let's get to the bottom. Psychopathy takes place when something happens, as I've discussed, to block our natural gifts of empathy and consideration. True psychopaths are emotionally blocked from birth as a result of massive trauma or genetics. That debate not yet quite settled. But Americans can't all be genetically deficient. Instead, what seems to happen is something like this. Americans seem to be socialized and acculturated, meaning, you know, brought up in a culture, into the psychopathy. And that process seems to go like this. You grow up in a culture where extreme brutality and violence is something that's normal, from school shootings to people just dying without basic medicine. Yes, you may lament at the loss of this life, but you don't feel the grief about it the pain, the injustice, because to do so would be to be an ultimate weakness. And you're taught that all that is moral, just, right, and fair. Now, I don't like the tone of like kind of imposing these things on you, the listener, but he's talking to America, you know, America. It's, it's like a, an open letter. If someone cannot stand up for themselves, they are weak. The weak deserve to perish. That's what I was taught at school in America, by the way, in no uncertain terms. The weak kids like me, the frail ones or the different ones, or the thinkers, the poets, the artists, were mercilessly picked on by morons with bulging muscles, and the teachers applauded openly. And maybe in secret, smiling as they walked away. You can tell me that's not like that, but of course it is. 
American life is one long process of socialization into a psychopathy. You go to preschool and grade school where things like lunch debt and bullying and school shootings are normal. You go to college where you learn uh, obscure theories that justify greed and selfishness and indifference. At those colleges, life is run by fraternities, bands of patriarchal brothers bonded together by and for violence to the vulnerable. That's what hazing is. Hello. You get a job where you're where being abused by your boss, screamed, threatened, is perfectly normal. If it's a good job, it involves trying to exploit someone else. Take advantage of their vulnerability. Make more money for you. And here, think of healthcare or investment banking or what tech has become. And if you can't do any of that, well, you're the weak one. And you deserve all the punishment and pain you get. So you find someone even more powerless to punch down on, to hate, to mean. Just like American working class whites do to black people and other minorities. Does that sound about right to you? I want to mention the general kind of tone. What's important for later in the show, if I get to it, will be the theme of normalization. That these attitudes, this culture, the, the non-material culture of violence, norm, normalizing brutality and being unemotional, it's normal. It's not good, like we don't consider maybe good at times, but it's normal. So let me ask again, are American psychopaths No, not all of them, quote-unquote. Even a psychopath will feel things once or twice in his life. Not all Americans are anything, but something seems to be badly wrong with enough of them. A huge number of Americans, certainly a majority, to have made America's society legendary for its cruelty. Something has gone wrong with enough Americans that when you ask them to think and feel things, they give you the look. They go dead in the eyes. Barely a hidden sneer. The rictus face is trying hard to conceal their rage at you. Something has gone badly wrong with enough Americans that the rest of the world is baffled and repelled by their struggling indifference. Even if it means destroying themselves in the process, Americans lash out. Instead of trying to nurture and protect, in a way that enough Americans think strength is having muscles and lots of guns or a flush bank account, different types of power, but not the immense gentleness, courage that it takes to lift up all others, especially the vulnerable. Remember the 300,000 needless dead, more than a world war, and how millions of Americans could care less. You know, just get me back to normal, Daddy Biden, or Daddy Trump, whatever. I guess Biden's more the uncle. So now for some uh, site that's I consider pop psychology, psychology today, which is kind of general observations. It's not like in-depth research. It's not well considered science journalism but it's pop science journalism it's a story that intrigued me a headline so i'm I'm basically attracted to the the headline and i think i read most of it once upon a time again this was also published uh at the end of last year and uh so it's not about america's psychopathy but you know talking about general mental health slash psychological issues and this one's about depression Something I don't know if I've ever suffered from. I'm more of an anxiety guy. Not sure which is better or worse. I find myself unable to relate to friends with depression or having those symptoms. But I certainly can when they're anxious and they're like, I'm nervous. Definitely there. But I'm only anxious and nervous about certain things. Usually when I'm doing something new for the first time. And it involves other people. Okay. So it's called, um, the article is written by an Allison Escalate. An MD. We've got depression all wrong. It's trying to save us. 
New theories recognize depression as part of a biological survival strategy. So let's reconsider mental illness a little bit. Other articles like Mad America will probably do the same. I will likely want to do more stories like this, a whole other episode. Go a little deeper. Right now I'm just going for the pop stuff. For generations we have seen depression as an illness. This is kind of a problem with most things, like whether it's addiction, it's like it's a disease. I mean, we go from personal defect, character flaw, to this is a health issue, which is better. And I feel now there's another step that's even more positive, which is like, no, this isn't really an illness. This is more like actual, like normal behavior, but it's gone too far or it's to an extreme degree of some kind and uh, or condition that needs to be managed. It's an idea that makes sense. Uh, that instead of being a deviation, it's normal functioning. It's an idea that makes sense because depression causes suffering and even death. But what if we've got it wrong? What if depression is not the aberration, but an important part of our biological defense system? Now, this could this whole article here could just be an example of trying to normalize something that is, in fact, wrong. That, no, depression is an aberration. An aberration caused by our non-material culture, as well as the... Non-material culture is, in Marxist terms, called superstructure. And then there's the base, which is like the, econ the economic culture, or like availability of jobs, security basics, and the non-basics. And these things matter. Material culture, or not just the culture, the, the material existence. Materialism. But it's uh, to say that it's probably bad to, it's probably wrong and inaccurate to normalize mental illness. And it could be a problem on the left that we're, by trying to make it so that we're not shaming our peers and that in order to build community, we need to stop ostracizing and be inclusive. And so there are strategies for maybe tricking ourselves with language that, so we can heal each other so that we can care and be less psychopathic. One strategy is to normalize all these uh, all these various pathologies, is the word pathology. Uh, see, uh, like a set of behaviors, or the behaviors slash symptoms of depression. Of course, we, we studied depression enough to know that it's, it's based in brain chemistry, uh, but brain chemistry, isn't that doesn't mean it's some inherent genetic defect, again. Like the other guy was saying, like, come on, you know, all Americans or half Americans can't be genetically psychopaths. There's something more here, something material. It's, it, could, it could be our economy, stupid. More and more researchers across specialities are questioning our current definitions of depression. Biological anthropologists have argued that depression is an adaptive response to adversity and not a mental disorder. Kind of in the same way that, like, adversity breeds character, builds character. To, to suffer. In, no, in October, the British Psychological Society published a new report on depression, stating, quoting them, depression is best thought of as an experience or set of experiences rather than a disease. Neuroscientists are focusing on the role of the automatic nervous system in depression, according to a polyvagal theory of the ANS. Depression is part of a biological defense strategy. The common wisdom is that depression starts in the mind with distorted thinking that leads to psychosomatic symptoms like headaches, stomachs, 
or fatigue. You're unaware, psychosomatic refers to a, well, it's not just, it's a type of symptom that's caused by the mind. You know, you think you're ill, so you feel ill. Now, models like polyvagal theory suggest, and vagal, vagal, poly, B-A-G-A-L, vagal. Theory suggests that we've got it backwards. It's the body that detects danger and initiates a defense strategy meant to help us survive. That biological strategy is called immobilization, and it manifests in the mind and the body with a set of symptoms we call depression, like an extreme version of, like, to be very still and the predator can't see, uh, smell you. <laughs> smell your fear. So don't think anything. Oh, don't, don't feel anything. If you're not afraid, it can't smell your fear. When you think of depression as irrational and unnecessary suffering, we stigmatize people and rob them of hope as well as care. You know, we stop caring about them. But when we begin to understand that, you know, you, there's nothing you can do about them, so there's no use putting resources into it, the problem. But when we begin to understand that depression, at least initially speaking, happens for a good reason, we lift the shame. People with depression are courageous survivors, not damaged invalids. Laura believes that depression saved her life. Most of the time, her father only hurt her with words. But it was when she stood up to him that Laura's dad got dangerous. That's when he'd get that vicious look in his eyes. More than once, his violence had put Laura's life at risk. Laura's father was so perceptive that he could tell when she felt rebellious on the inside, even when she was hiding it, and he punished her for those feelings. It was, yeah, the depression that helped Laura survive. Depression kept her head down, kept her from resisting, helped her accept the unacceptable. Depression numbered, numbed her rebellious feelings. Laura grew up at a time where there was no one to tell, nowhere for her to get help outside her home. Her only strategy was to survive in place. Laura's story is stark. It's ugly. It's the stuff of dystopia, I swear. And it helps us understand that even though depression may happen for a good reason, that does not make it a good thing. Okay? Laura, or, nor, or something that is supposed to be normal. Normal being accepted. Laura suffered deeply and describes the pain of her hopelessness vividly. Her depression was a bad experience that started as the last resort of a good biological system. Depression starts with immobilization. According to the polyvagal theory, well, no, no, it's, it's a series of facts. It's a series of ideas and evidence. Theory explains something. A hypothesis would be a educated guess. So it's beyond hypothesis here. This is something that is... They put out this paper because they feel confident in this idea. According to this theory, discovered and articulated by neuroscientist Stefan Progs, our daily experiences are based on a hierarchy of states in the automatic nervous system. When this system feels safe, we experience a sense of well-being and social connection. That's when we feel like ourselves, as he puts it. But the automatic nervous system is also constantly scanning our internal and external environment for danger. It's kind of subconscious. If it detects a threat or even a simple lack of safety, which when you're in capitalism, it's like you're never really safe because you could lose your job and then you're out on the streets. And then it's uh, every man for himself. And even having, even when you maybe have a job, if there's a culture of every man for himself, how can you ever, you know, no community, no uh, shared emotion or fat or reality? Of course, none of us 
are able to feel safe. And thus we're always either depressed or anxious. You know, if there's a lack of safety, our next strategy is the fight or flight response, which then often can lead to anxiety. Sometimes the threat is so bad or goes on for so long that the nervous system decides that there's no way to fight or to flee. At that point, there's only one option left, to be immobilized. The, the immobilization response, you know, just stopping your tracks, is the original biological defense in higher animals. This is the shutdown system we see in reptiles, also known as the freeze or faint response. Ah, so beyond fight or flight is freeze or faint. Mobilization is mediated by the dorsal vagus nerve. It turns down the metabolism to a resting state, which often makes people feel faint or sluggish. You know, think of um, possums or other animals that, well, they freeze when they're in danger. Deer in a headlights. <laughs> Mobilization has an important role. It dulls pain and makes us feel disconnected. Think of a rabbit hanging limply in a fox's mouth. That rabbit is shutting down so it won't suffer too badly when it's eaten. And the immobilization response, oh boy, that's morbid when you, if you apply it to a, a human. And the immobilization response also has a, you know, capitalism is eating us. It's, it's drinking our blood. It's eating our organs. And so a lot of us shut down. So this is, this has some explanatory power, doesn't it? And you can link it into general leftist uh, critique and, you know, cows, you know, we need socialism to break us out of this. Some doctors speculate that this metabolic state could help healing and severe illness. In humans, people often describe feeling out of their bodies during traumatic events. This has a defensive effect of cushioning the emotional shock. This is important because some things are so terrible, we don't want people to fully be present when they happen. So the immobilization response is a key part of biological defense, but it is ideally designed to be a short-term response. Either a metabolic shutdown preserves the organism, i.e. the rabbit gets away or the organism dies and the fox eats the rabbit. But if the threat continues indefinitely and there is no way to fight or flee, the immobilization response continues. And since the response also changes brain activity, as anything does, everything does, it impacts how people's emotions and their ability to solve problems. Hmm. People feel like they can't get moving physically or mentally. Then feel hopeless and helpless. That's depression. Now, does it have any value? Let's see why Laura's childhood circumstances would set off the this response, and even how it might have helped her survive. But why does it happen in people with less obvious adversity? Our culture tends to think of depression in the person who finds work too stressful as a sign of weakness. Self-help articles imply that they just need more mental toughness, and they could learn, lean in, solve it. Even some therapists tell them that their depression is a distorted perception. You know, I try to lightly push back on a talk of a law of attraction and attitude. You know, you feel shitty, you get you get it back. But there is not, but that is not how the body sees it. It's not reality. Okay, the defense response is an automatic nervous system. Whether it's fight or flight or mobilization, is an actual nature of the trigger. Whether it does one thing or another is the actual nature of the trigger. They are about whether this body decides there is a threat, and that happens at a pre-conscious point. Biological threat response starts before we think about it, and then our higher-level brain makes up a story later to explain it. We don't get to choose this response. It happens before we know it. 
And that's the response. What we do have control of is how we feel about it later. To not make up a story, to think hard and be informed about like, oh, this is what my brain did, so I'm going to blame the abuser or the abusive system, the abusive circumstances. Studying anxiety has revealed that for many modern circumstances can set off this response. For example, low rubbling noise from construction equipment, sound to the nervous system like a growl of a large predator, better run. Feeling like they have better evacu evaluated school removes kids' sense of safety and triggers fight or flight. You know, it, it being in any uh, workplace where you're evaluated all the time. Better give the teacher attitude or avoid homework. And to most of us, fight or flight feels like anxiety. Eventually, if these modern triggers last long enough, the body decides it can't get away. Next comes immobilization, which the body triggers to defend us. According to Portis, what we call depression is a cluster of emotional and cognitive symptoms that sits on top of a psychological platform. It's a strategy meant to help us survive. Depression happens for a fundamentally good reason, and that changes everything. When people who are depressed learn that they are not damaged, but have a good biological system that is in fact trying to help, they begin to see themselves differently, after all. Depression is notorious for the feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, but if depression is an active defense strategy, people may recognize that they are not quite so helpless as they thought. So, a word on shifting out of this immobilization. If depression is the emotional expression of this response, then the solution is to move out of that state. Porges believes it is not enough to simply remove the threat. Rather, the nervous system has to detect robust signals of safety to bring that social state back online. The best way to do that? Social connection. One of the symptoms of depression is shame. A sense of having let others down, of being unworthy. And it really doesn't help to have a non-material culture that tells us that we're all not worthy of anything. That we have to work hard just to eat. Or that, say, that since we do in fact provide a basic floor for food, a.k.a. food stamps, depending on the state you're in, but I'm in New York, which we, we do pretty well in that regard, but there's still a, you don't deserve this, that you should feel shame for getting, you know, 50 bucks a week for groceries. It is time we start honoring the courage and strength of depressed people. It is time we start valuing the incredible capacity of our biology to find a way in hard times, and it is time that we stop pretending depressed people are any different than anyone else. Um, that's where it ends. So general strategy is connection. I need to spend more time with my friends to avoid anxiety to feel safe, which I've been doing, or I plan to do. So quickly in the last 10 minutes, I'll really have to go quick with this, from Gizmodo. So it's shifting away from the um, kind of more clinical psychology of treating depression to evolutionary psychology, which goes to kind of, actually it was kind of used in this article, that whole like fight or flight response, immobilization, environmental evolutionary psychology is like, okay, other animals, are brethren in the animal world, our cousins, distant cousins, also have these responses. Maybe we do too. Maybe we are obviously not some greater being than them. This is uh, written by Ryan Mandelbaum for Gizmodo. And it is titled, This Philosopher is Challenging All of Evolutionary Psychology. But she's doing it in a very, you know, constructive manner. So this is often, a, it's not often a paper attempts to take down an entire field. Although it's, it's a critique. 
Yeah, this past January, that's precisely what University of New Hampshire assistant philosophy professor uh, Asudbera Smith tried to do. It's titled, Is Evolutionary Psychology Possible? It describes a major issue with evolutionary psychology. It's called the matching problem. So I'll go through an explanation of that, and I think that will be enough. That'll have to be enough for you. But check out this article. Links will be provided uh, in the show notes via the podcast and on my site. Yeah, I have to make posts again, I guess. So I'll make posts for episodes, and there will be sources there. It's not often that a paper attempts to... Oh, okay. The field of evolutionary psychology is no stranger to critique. Even its central idea that human behavior can be explained in evolutionary terms, that the core units governing our actions haven't changed much since the, ne the Neolithic, a.k.a. the Stone Age. But Smith's paper garnered a particularly strong response after science journalist Adam Ruffethard discussed it on Twitter, and P.Z. Myers discussed it in his Falimgula blog. Oh, I haven't heard that name since I was in the New Atheist Movement. We at Gizmodo have long rolled our eyes at the often nonsensical conclusions that some people come to when employing evolutionary psychology theory. So we are excited to chat with Smith about her work. So this is in the form of an interview. So Gizmodo asks Smith to explain the matching problem. Evolutionary psychologists' thought is that for at least some of our behavior, let's say it's depression, they believe that we have, dare I use the term, hardwired cognitive structures that are operating in all of us contemporary human beings. The idea is that in the modern world, we have some sort of modern skull, but the wiring, so, the, so we're, we're already stepping in the mud by using a computer analogy because in the Enlightenment era, it was gears and cogs, mechanical. Now we're machines. We're still machines, but we're, we're wired. We're like computers, which is... Probably not a good idea to make such a... It's okay to use metaphors to start thinking, but it shouldn't be the conclusion. The idea is that in the modern world, we have a sort of modern skull, but the wiring, the cognitive structure, you know, how we think, is not has not been modified because enough evolutionary time hasn't passed. This goes for evolutionary functions like choosing mates, parental care, predator avoidance, and that our brains are pretty much in the same state as our ancestors. The sameness is in how our brains work is on account of genetic selection for particular modules. Editors note these modules refer to the idea that the brain can be divided up into a discrete st structure with specific functions, something else that's also kind of problematic. The matching problem is really the core issue that evolutionary psychologists have to show that they can meet, that there is really a match between our modules and the modules of our prehistoric ancestors that they're working the same way, and that these modules are working the same way because they have descended from the same functional lineage, you know, the, the genes. It's in the genes, right? But a lot's changed, socially, materially. Our brains have been shown to also be very plastic, meaning changeable. The wiring. You know, drink enough alcohol and your wiring gets screwed. So what inspired to write the paper? I talked about some of these issues in my dissertation official, like, a, this is how I got my doctorate. But the ideas got mature and seasoned since graduate school. I suppose the question is, why evolutionary psychology? I was associated roughly with that scene some years ago. I found the you know, a scene, like it's music. I found the evolutionary psychology explanations of human behavior in themselves evocative but puzzling, given what I understood of the theory of evolution. 
particularly the importance of variation. You know, things vary over time. So how can we say we have the same cognitive ability and fight-or-fight responses as, as lizards? There's more to it. Can you give some examples of scenarios of the matching problem in action? Well, here's the problem. With respect to human beings, we don't have the relevant evidence about how our ancestors behaved to make any substantial claim. We can only use evidence of our, be of our behavior and evidence of the likely kinds of behaviors that may have existed. We know that ancient humans avoided pre uh, predators. We exactly What exactly they did is something that we have to show. you got to have the evidence, right? Did our ancestors avoid predators because they were good at hiding or because they were good at running? Evolutionary psychologists would say that the better explanation is that they were running. But the fact that they ran to avoid predators and the fact that we have the disposition to run when we're endangered still does not establish that it's just this is just one part of the brain doing this job. To use another example from the paper of Aaron Godes, uh, they, they talk about cuckoldry. Uh, what's, what are some of the potential harms of evolutionary psychology? So she goes into the overall problems. I may, you know, evolutionary psychology isn't just, it's, it's not overall, she doesn't say, think it's silly or something. But one thing people tend to forget, that is, in Origin of the Species, Darwin takes several chapters to talk about variation. You know, the impression one gets from evolutionary psychologists and their theories, when we're talking about human beings and their brains, that our brains are rather static. And in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. We're dynamic. Our behaviors are dynamic. We have ima we're imaginative. We generate novel behaviors all the time. So that's a general problem to consider. And uh, what's you know where does it go? Well, just starting a conversation, and uh, and so it'll uh, it'll develop from there. Hopefully, if people pay attention, she could be ignored. This could be the writer really liked um, the point she was making. So with that, I will go into the second half of the three-half show.
Okay, welcome back to the Three Left Show, second half, second hour. I'm your host, Dan Platt. This talks about issues and anything of interest from a revolutionary left perspective. I've spent months talking about strategy and electioneering and uh, various like internal left-wing debates. Taking a break from that uh, for the next few weeks, uh, I suppose, talk about things maybe random listeners may actually consider interesting and, uh, and, and, uh, and be attracted to. As my ecological and architectural episodes get uh, much more listens. So I should probably follow that little hint there. Uh, anyway, this is more of the um, anything of interest type of episode. Uh, I'm going to spend the next hour kind of talking about alternative relationships and how we could be relating to each other, not generally, but like the growing subcultures of arrows, aces, and the more other types of queers, um, queerness. Uh, so let's start with the most mainstream, or, uh, paper of note, New York Times article. Uh, from best friends to platonic spouses, some people are taking their friendships to the next level by saying, I do, to marriages without sex. And this is in their love section. They actually have a love section, but they call it the love section, right? So it's got a picture, two girlfriends. Uh, one's wearing a off-white dress, and the other's wearing more gray dress. Uh, their names are Jay Guerrero and Crystal Guerrero. Obviously, they have the same last name now. They've been friends since 2011, and they've married. The couple share a bed without any physical contact. Now, this is filed by Danielle Braff, published May of this year. First came Blood Brothers, best friends who would solidify their bond by cutting themselves and swapping a bit of blood. Then came the Tiny House Besties, friends moving into adjoining tiny homes, like a row in Texas. Today, some people are taking their friendships a giant step further. They are platonically marrying each other, vowing to never leave each other's side for better or worse. On November 14th, 2020, Greenwood Hall in East Islip, New York. Uh, this is um, Long Island. Uh, Jay and Crystal donned their wedding gowns, walked down the aisle. They did the normal wedding thing, traditional wedding thing. I want her to continue to be my best friend and my life partner, says Miss Greco, a 23-year-old 20, student studying professional comms at Farmingdale State College. Ooh, I, I looked into going there. They have a ar four-year architecture program, but it was only a four-year. So it wasn't really a full B.A., and it was also in the middle of suburban Long Island. So I wasn't interested in that. The besties, both queer and open to dating anyone but each other, met in 2011 and decided to get married in September. They sleep in the same bed, but their relationship remains platonic. Uh, they wanted to get married because they wanted to be legally and socially recognized as a family. This is important because then there, there are legal ramifications to being defined as a family. This is something that certain uh suburbs have zoned that like oh we want we need family members living we only want families in this neighborhood you see only families so these uh roommates they're uh, they're up to no good so now they're defined legally as a family they may be they're entitled to actual certain rights in various uh municipalities you also need to be family members for certain legal rights and health insurance and you know there have been comedy movies about this. You know, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry and other such arta artifacts of our demented obsession with sex and family. Okay, we wanted the world to know that we are each other's go-to person in the world and to be able to handle legal matters with the other appropriately. 
We are a couple, a unit, partners for life. They say their marriage is stable, it's long-lasting, and it has no conditions. There are no stats about the number of platonic best friend marriages, and many people who are in them aren't open about their situation. But chat boards on Reddit and within smaller asexual and aromantic communities that have popped up more recently, suggesting this could be a larger proportion larger portion of the marriage population than numbers might portray. Now, asexual is defined as having little or no sexual attraction towards others. Aromantic means having little or no desire for a romantic relationship. Heteromonogamous is a sexual relationship between a man and a woman. Defining terms. Now, I have other articles about each of these things, by the way. Uh, it should be acknowledged that we're really normalized heterosexual monogamous romantic relationships to the point of stigmatizing any other kind. Uh, new age and hippie movement notwithstanding, it didn't really have the long-term impact that they thought they would have. All of this is to say, I think this probably happens a lot, but people don't talk about it much. So it's all just kind of... Historically, marriage has been... but uh, Marriage was an economic proposition, but it has shifted over time to a choice representing all-consuming relationships. A sex or relationship therapist, a Stray Kruger in Denver, under this framework, couples expect each other to fulfill all their needs, the social, the psychological, and the economic. It's a lot of pressure, and thus leads to a lot of splits. And thus, when you can't fulfill all of these things, divorce follows. Platonic marriages raise an interesting question related to what elements are most important in a marriage, and what needs partners, and what needs partners theoretically must meet for marriages to be successful. Relationship expert who lives in L.A. and is a former sociologist for the dating apps Tinder and Bumble. Kim Rater, 40, never considered marrying a best friend, though she considers herself to be non-binary, aromantic, and bisexual. Ms. Rater, who lives in Dorman, Germany, and is unemployed, tried OkCupid in 2013 and found her husband, who is also the same, aromantic and asexual. I need to find someone like that, too. They quickly become tonic best friends and married in 2018. Our daily lives are that of best friends. We talk and laugh, watch movies, but there is almost no physical element. Sometimes we hug and give massages, and every night we have a good night kiss. But we have separate bedrooms. We are, also, we are the most important people in each other's lives. I think this could be what I'm looking for. Kima Barron and Dean Brown of Columbus, Ohio, are both pansexual and have a similar platonic marriage. Pansexual, defined as sexual, romantic, and emotional attraction towards people, regardless of any sex or gender identity. These things do not matter to them. They have been best friends for seven years and each have two children from previous relationships. Miss Brown had her second child. The friends decided to get married and make all of their life decisions together. They decided to make it official because they wanted to build a family together, to raise their children together, and to make all their major choices as a unit. When a family is... They're in the process of buying a house and getting a joint bank account. Their children consider each other brother and sister. I mean, each other could call each woman mom. I always like this one um, old Law & Order episode, SVU, where you have a lesbian couple. And so, like, the, and they're raising a, a girl uh, who's being bullied and pretty much sexually harassed. And, oh, no, no, no. One of the mothers was killed, and thus it's a Law and Order episode. But uh, the surviving mother is, is mother, like she says, like what's wrong? Tell mommy Zoe. You know, they use the first name to distinguish one mom from the other. Uh, we are committed to investing in each other so much, 
so that we can both be successful, and ultimately we love each other very much. Miss Brown, 30, a disabled Navy vet. In every way that you look at a husband or a marriage in terms of interpersonal connections and intimacy, it's there. Miss Brown and Bar- Barton have never been intimate with each other, and they both have given each other freedom to date outside their marriage. Kimberly Pernan, psychotherapist in Townsend, Maryland, said that couples in each in this type of arrangement often find compatibility and understanding each other as well, while also agreeing to the guidelines without being blinded by romantic feeling. Many of these relationships, she said, begin because the couple wants their family life separate from their romantic life, as they don't find the romantic lives to ever be stable. Maybe there never are. Maybe that's something inherent to it. Others may be disenchanted with love and feel that long-standing friendships with a history of resolving conflict feel like a safer bet. Hmm. If both partners have clear understandings of what is expected, flexibility and communication skills to address conflict, they do not wish to marry a romantic partner and are fine with going against the norms, then who are any of us to say it won't work? Particularly, it might work better. Platonic marriages have been prevalent since marriage became an institution, while marrying for love is more of an oddity in human history. Thus meant by like, oh, my spouse is my best friend. We just so happen to also smash. In the U.S., where, uh, but also like if you don't, then you shouldn't real feel shame about that. But uh, I think the cultural patriarchy says you should. You know, women as baby factories to be controlled. Uh, Julep Tech, 24, a call center rep. Oh, terrible work. In San Antonio. Said she feels this way about her future wife, Ashley Roberts, 25, a direct support professional for the state of Texas. Taya, who is demisexual, plans to marry Miss Roberts, who has been her best friend since the sixth grade. A demisexual is defined as only being sexually attracted to someone with whom you have an emotional bond. All the financial decisions together. Now, of course, some people say, would say, of course, you only want to have sex with someone with an emotional bond. That's what love is. Well, we're defining it maybe a little clinically, but we're also being more specific because there are the types of sexual attraction that actually doesn't involve emotion at all, it seems. How do you describe hookups and other things like that? But it's like, oh, no, they always do. It's like, well, maybe one person's demisexual and one person is not. Uh, Ms. Taya, who says she has a social anxiety, which makes it difficult for her to know anyone intimately, and she isn't interested in romantic relationships. She said that there's more to marriage beyond sex and romance. Her emotional needs are fulfilled, and she can't imagine a life without Miss Roberts. Meeting people is hard. Getting a bond and romantic feelings is hard, and more and more young people are starting to realize that there are other benefits to marriage other than romantic love. I mean, isn't the point to marry your best friend, Miss Taya said? So why can't it be your literal best friend? And this is in the fashion and lifestyle section of the New York Times. But is this just a the young people thing? Is this a millennial thing? Well, here is, I think, an interesting... This is, again, psychology today. So Bella DiPaolo, PhD, also living single. And so that she would cut, then she would uh, write this. So in the relationship section. Half of all single people just don't want a relationship. So if you think marrying your best friend and not having, you know, marrying someone that you, 
It's not sexual. It's not maybe not even romantic. If you think that's wild, this has polling. Many singles like being single and have more important priorities than coupling. But this, there's actually something about this that was um, a little more stereotype shattering. Okay. A just-released report by Pew, they're the main research center that polls, sends a dagger straight through the heart of a popular mythology. The one that insists that what people want more than anything else is to become coupled. So untrue. The findings, based on a national random sampling of nearly 5,000 adults, that's an okay sample number, showed that I'd be more sus if it was 1,000 or 500. But it showed that half of this 5,000 were not interested in a committed romantic relationship, and they are not even interested in a date. An another 10% want nothing more than casual dates. About a quarter of single people would be interested in casual dates or committed one or committed relationship. And this is talking about romantic ones here. Just 14% are looking only for a serious one. And this has been true for at least, okay, at least 15 years. It would be tempting to assume that this is a testament to the growing number of single people. Just about every time the Census Bureau releases its latest figures, we learn that there are even more singles than there were the year before. A previous Pew report made the remarkable prediction that by the time today's young adults reach the age of 50, about one in four will have been single their entire lives. I'm about on track for that. No shame. But, but, sorry, it's speaking in the future tense, that that's a cohort of 50-year-olds in which a quarter haven't been married. Now, is this all a symptom of our atomized uh, post-capitalist lives? That's the usual assumption from a leftist. But the phenomenon is not specific to the U.S., not pure old core, not to our empire, where we're all sort of psychopaths. In many countries all around the world, rates of marriage are also going down. So is a globalism. I've been keeping track of surveys of people interested in marriage and romantic relationships for years, being someone who's a lifelong single, I guess, because the questions are asked in different ways with different kinds of options for answering. The results can seem confusing. There is, though, one study very similar to the new 2021, uh, and it was conducted in 2005. So this is before mass dating sites, Tinder and hookup culture or whatever. Maybe it was all still there before. But 2005 was when, you know, when the 80s and 90s culture shifted into the millennial culture. The participants of the 2005 Pew survey were adults in the U.S. who were legally single, either divorced, separated, or widowed, or they had always been single. They were asked whether they were in a committed romantic relationship and whether they were currently looking for one. They were not asked whether they were interested in casual dating. So that's something that's quite recent as far as being a considerable option. Otherwise, what is that? What is that? Being a slut? We're not going to ask people if they're a slut. <laughs> Are you loose? These are things that were, you know, made you pariahs. Now it's been, quote-unquote, normalized. So to a certain extent. But we all feel guilty about it. Shame. Those results from 15 years ago were strikingly similar to the ones just reported. More than half of all, so, so a full generational, you know, 15-year cycle earlier, the results haven't changed. So 
even though the census might be change, like showing different numbers year to year, like this, this isn't a new millennial slash Zoomer trend. If these surveys were done every 15, 10 years, the results maybe have been the same all the time. Possible, but unknown. More than half of all unmarried Americans were not in a committed romantic relationship and not looking for one. Just 16% of unmarried Americans who were not already in one said they wanted to be. Those results, and these are results from uh, 15 years ago. So here's the differences between the 2020 survey and the 05 survey. Solo, single people, uninterested in a romantic relationship. Only 5% apart, 50 and 55%. Solo people looking for a serious relationship. 14% in 2020, 16% in 05. Negligible difference. The 2020 survey was a bit different because it started with people who were socially single rather than just legally single. Single was defined as not married, legally speaking. If all those single people, people not currently married or in a relationship already, exactly half, said they they were not looking for one or even a date, only 14% said they wanted a committed one, not just something casual. So let's look at the singles who are especially uninterested in partnering. The findings I have summarized so far were averaged across all single people. But unmarried people are quite a diverse group. There are differences among single people who is most uninterested. Okay, this is a question. Are there differences among single people who are the most uninterested in partnering? When I reviewed five previous studies, I found, and she has a link to these studies here, or the article where she talks about them, I found one strong, consistent finding. People who have tried marriage before, uh, so thus they are divorced or widowed now, are especially unlikely to want to try again. The new 2020 study, which asked a broader question about interest in partnering, not just marriage, found the same thing. Remember that across all singles, whether previously married or always single, 50% said they were uninterested in a romantic relationship. So half of them. For divorced people, that number was 56%. It was striking. Oh, and for the and for the widowed, it was a striking 74%. You know, no one else can match my beloved. Only the people who have never tried marriage were more likely to be interested in a romantic partnering than in uninterested. But it was still like 38%, which is not nobody. The high level, so it's like a third, more than a third. The high level of disinterest among the widows suggests that age could be a factor, and it is. Three-quarters of those people polled were 65 and older. For the 50 to 64-year-olds, the percentage is the same as for the sample as a whole. Half are uninterested. Among the younger groups, fewer people express no interest at all. But the percentages are all substantial, you know, more than a third. 39% for the 30 to 50, 37% for the 18 to 29. So it goes up as age uh, as age goes up. Some people say they live long because they didn't marry. And they've stayed single. Anecdotal. More women than men have no interest in romantic relationships or dating. The difference becomes even greater at older ages. At ages 40 and above, more than 7 and 10 are uninterested. Sometimes it's difficult to relay this through audio. It really helps to have, like, uh, if I could make graphs and put them in a YouTube video. So why aren't singles interested in romantic partnering? 
In one of my previous posts here at Living Single, I critiqued a study that tried to figure out why men stay single based on just one flaming Reddit thread. Even in that thread, in which the men were egging each other on to say outrageous things, striking numbers of men said that they were single because they liked being single. They had other priorities, or they just weren't interested in romance. Not that you could easily tell that from the published version of the article, of course. The author tried to bury all those kinds of answers and instead emphasized comments suggesting that they were single because they thought they were ugly, had low self-esteem, or they just weren't making the effort. So you ignore the the structural, the economic, or the actual like personal reality, and you just focus on, you know, uh, something's wrong with them. You know, these these uh damaged incels. The few researchers were a bit more even handed though. First, the recruitment efforts targeted a national sample. And second, they did not rely on Reddit threads to generate their answers. By far, this is why you don't take online Reddit thread, well, not just Reddit threads, but any kind of chat room or social media as uh, anything that could be factual. It's all self-reporting. It's all anecdotal. It's not data. There's nothing fair about the collection of the data anyway. By far the two most popular answers the national sample of U.S. adults gave for why they were uninterested were that they had more important priorities. This was a half of them. And they just like being single, said another 44%. I would say a little bit of both. 60% ages 18 to 50 said they had more important things, uh, like surviving post, surviving postmodern capitalism. 41, 46, um, so they like being single. 41 for those 18 to 50, 50 plus 46%. The younger adults, meaning under 50, were especially likely to say that they have more important things to do. Yeah, like 40, 20% difference. All the other reasons for being uninterested were far less important. Uh, going down, 20% said too busy. 18% uh, no luck in the past. 17% feel like no one would be interested. 17, same 17%, not ready after losing a spouse or ending up another relationship. 17% said they feel like they're too old. 11% said health problems make it difficult. The men and women were very similar, though, in seven of the eight reasons for their lack of interest. The one difference was their fear that no one would be interested. More men than women worried about that. About a quarter versus 12%. But again, it's it's the that's the lowest popular reason. Shrugging off the pressure to partner. Mental blanketing is my term for the relentless and pervasive glorifying of marriage and the shaming of singles. I described it in detail in Singled Out. The results of the Pew survey show that many single people are no longer feeling that pressure, especially as they get older. Even those who are feeling it are not letting it get to them. They are no more likely to be looking for a romance than people who are not feeling the pressure. So what are some of the ways that can manifest? Not to say that the uh, the times one mentioned that uh, some of these people coupling up are uh, aromantic, are asexual. So it's like there's overlap, but there there's not a one-to-one ratio. The one does not necessarily mean the other. So I don't mean to actually imply that, but I kind of just did. But I, I want to imply that these are connected stories, but they are, you know, they, they, they're overlapping at the very least, as everything does. 
So this is from Insider, health section, of course. But there's really no, I have two stories, I have two articles that I could go either way with like what I do first. This one's uh, the, about the aromantic, but their title is not so positive. It's uh, the aromantic people describe what it's like to feel barely any passion or affection towards others, which makes them sound psychopathic, doesn't it? No passion, no emotion. I wouldn't consider it the same. I feel all kinds of emotions, but I also describe myself as aromantic. The thing that me and some of my artist friends kind of contend about is, is this just a behavior from our situations? It's not really something to use as an identity, as something that is inherent, because that's the kind of implication. I don't want to do kind of either of those things. I'm, I'm sort of agnostic. Julia Nefrum is the writer. Bullet points, though, it's mostly a defining of terms to repeat. Aromanticism, a sexual identity where a person feels little or no romantic attraction, is often misunderstood. People who are aromantic could also be asexual, but not all of them are, and vice versa. Aromantic people can be can also have successful relationships that go beyond societal standards of love. Yasmin Benoit never related to the butterflies in your stomach feeling her fellow students talked about when they developed crushes. The idea that someone could become enamored with a near stranger, or worse, a fictional Twilight character, seems strange. I just thought it all seemed very silly. You'd have girls arguing with each other about some very mediocre boy. It seemed to really dominate people's thoughts and lives, and I just didn't care in the slightest. Benoit herself is a UK-based model and activist who focuses on visibility for the asexual and the aromantic, two of the most misunderstood sexualities. We're also kind of working to get included in the queer alphabet. Because otherwise, A stands for ally. Benoit is asexual, meaning she expresses little to no sexual attraction to others. And also aromantic, meaning she expresses little to no romantic attraction either. And it also includes a picture of her. She is very cute. There is more than one way to be aromantic. Uh, little data exists on aromantic people, so it's unclear how many people identify with sexuality. But I could say, like, uh, that we've also developed vocabulary about, like, I'm attracted to their aesthetic. So when I say someone's cute and hot, it's not because I'm hard. <laughs> That's too vulgar. Uh, sexually attracted. There's more than one way to be a romantic, of course. Little data exists on this uh, behavior set or this identity. Uh, so it's unclear how many people or the behaviors of those who identify. So how many people identify with this sexuality? Like all others, it falls on a spectrum. For example, one aromantic person may feel no attraction, romantic, while another may feel small amounts of romance uh, in their relationships. So according to an Aces and Arrows website, Asexual is shortened for, to ace. Uh, thus we use a spade as a, a card, the card type spade as a symbol. There are aromantic folks who label themselves as demo-romantic because maybe they only feel romance to a person they have a strong emotional connection to, similar to the demisexual. Others call themselves gray romantic because they feel it sometimes, but it's not, you know, consistent. According to Benoit, Coming into her aromantic identity at 15 was confusing due to societal messaging. It wasn't until her peers questioned her lack of interest in finding love that she did a Google search and learned about these, these terms. 
Indeed, aromantic people don't relate to societal relationship standards, according to our own self-help website, so to speak. I wouldn't call it self-help, um, but our own educational website. Book, television, movie plots often center around a main character finding romantic love. Characterized by first-day jitters, longing for affection from a love interest, and pining over their best qualities. But we don't have those experiences. That's why Jenny Kaskajo, 28-year-old in Germany, Googled can't fall in love. After her seemingly perfect boyfriend professed his love, she realized she couldn't reciprocate the sentiment, and it was a pattern in all of her connections, her romantic ones. Uh, after learning more about this and romanticism, she realized she wasn't broken, that maybe she was misunderstood or had a misunderstood sexuality. About uh, aromantic, fulfilling relationships. They slash we can be great friends, family, and partners, even though they don't experience romantic love. In fact, they can feel other types of attraction, of course, desire for uh, platonic friendships, interest in something that looks pleasing, aesthetics, or also sexual attraction. What's more, aromantic people don't need to feel any attraction to uphold successful relationships because it's not necessary for human connection overall. This is the arrow ace, credo. Uh, Claire, an aromantic person, women's health interviewed, said they have a queer platonic partner who they lean on for emotional support. They don't have sex, but they do meet up regularly for outings. I think there's a pervasive idea that people need romance for happiness telling Roman's health. As an aromantic person, I have my friends, I have my found family, and I have hobbies. I do work, and I find it fulfilling. I just don't find fulfillment and joy from romance. And that's how it ends. Onward to the other half, the ace side. This is published by The Guardian. The title is a quote, I don't want sex with anyone, the growing asex sex asexuality movement. And by the way, just so you're aware, the colors of Aero Ace are gray, black, white, and purple. Or lavender. You know, which is synonymous with queerness and stuff. But we include uh, grays and blacks to represent the negation in the same way that a black flag is anarchism. Asexual representation is becoming more common, but the orientation is so widely misunderstood. Not wanting sex is not the same as not wanting any romance or intimacy, thus, you know, they're not mutually inclusive or exclusive. Sometimes its advocates say the rest of us would benefit from learning about it. Oh, okay. Because she's both Arrow and Ace, this article is also about the same model. So the model has kind of put out a press release and she's being interviewed because of and that's kind of basic kind of activism. You have a platform, you use it, for cause, even if it's just educational, which is just peachy keen. So more kind of a different kind of... So I suppose it's the same person, but she's being asked different questions because it's, this is an article about asexuality, not aromanticism. So when the then teenager came out as asexual, no one believed her. They were like, you don't look asexual. You're probably just insecure or you just have got molested, or you must be gay. Maybe you're a psychopath and can't form proper connections with people. Everyone had a theory. Isn't that great how things can turn around? It's, you know, anyway, it's almost like I planned it. Everyone had a theory about what was wrong with Benoit. No one accepted the simple fact that by nature, she didn't feel sexual attraction towards others. And she's not alone. 
Today, as well as being a fashion model, the poised 24-year-old is the world's most prominent activist for asexuality, estimated to be 1% of the global population. Kind of same same uh, percentage as um, homosexual homosexuals. I don't want to have sex with anybody, and I probably won't ever have sex. Though, actually, is homosexuality, was it 10%? I have, have to look it up again, I guess. It's been a while since I've looked at those stats. It's like 1 in 10 is queer. Uh, I don't want to have sex with anybody, and I probably won't ever. I like this one comic where it compared being asexual to, or the, the sex act is compared to someone picking your nose. It's like not really pleasurable. <laughs> Our society is increasingly hypersexualized, she says, and that can make it particularly alienating for asexual people who don't have those feelings or don't want that in their life. The asexuality movement is young but fast-growing, and it recently received a notable boost. Last September saw the release of Ace, a critically acclaimed book by an asexual journalist, Angela Chen. It illuminates the myriad shades of asexuality via a series of real-life profiles. Instead of getting bogged down in definitions, people can read these stories and think, does that resonate with my experience? Chen is a 29-year-old who's based in Brooklyn. For too long, such experiences have not gotten acknowledged. Asexuality has sometimes been dubbed the forgotten or the invisible orientation owing to its lack of public prominence. Until recently, it was deemed a medical issue by the U.S. DSMMD. That's the Manual on Mental Disorders which added an exception in 2013 to state that asexuals do not have a desire disorder, and many continue to erroneously dismiss it as an affliction. It has also been labeled the world's first Internet orientation, implying that people who feel this way have only existed since the advert of the Internet, suggesting that it's a fad embraced by pink-haired teens on Tumblr, but not applicable in the real world. Nonetheless, the Internet has been an anchor for the modern asexuality crusade which began in 2000, which is 20 years ago. It's kind of a while ago now, when David J., a San Fran college student, started a website uh, to connect with others. When he'd looked up asexuality, all he found were papers about plant biology and anibas. It attracted thousands of hits, and he then launched the Asexual Visibility Education Network, AVEN. I think I may have covered this before, but two years ago. So I'm revisiting, which remains the biggest asexual platform with 120,000 members. Tight-knit com community, which since sprouted on, uh, which though there are also other communities that have sprouted on social medias. Jay has been uh, joined by a spirited collective of younger activists who give talks. They write books, they host podcasts, and run YouTube channels. They're showing it's possible to live a fulfilling life without sex. And although they're a small minority, they have plenty to teach the rest of us. Such as about all allosexuals, people who do experience sexual attraction, who conflate sex, romance, and intimacy, yet could benefit from teasing these things apart. Or about how sexual partnerships are automatically ranked higher in a social totem pole than platonic ones. You know, you're just friends. And enshrined in health insurance and other laws, it's institutional. It's structural. Even though friendships can also, well, can be, in fact, more meaningful. Meaningful enough to marry. Without sex clouding their vision, aces say they are coming from a unique position, clarity. Asexuality is not something that's so separate. 
It's a lens that you can use to evaluate your own life, no matter how you identify. So this is where maybe it's not like an innate sexual orientation, but if it's just like this is a lens which my experiences in the modern world have led to this position, or like my brain has been trained through various stimuli to not feel sexual attraction. For me, asexuality is not about how much sex someone has, but the role uh, sexuality plays in our lives. I've never, I never ever think about it if someone's sexually attractive. A Daniel Walker, a 24-year-old from East Midlands who hosts YouTube channel Slice of Ace, is asexual but homoromantic. He is physically affectionate with his boyfriend and says they externally, my relationship looks very similar to any other gay relationship. But he has zero internal sex drive. He says he is comfortable engaging it as a part of his relationship, though. Oh, yeah, okay, that he has no sex drive. So if you remove it, sexual desire, that is, what's the difference between romance and an intense platonic friendship? Research suggests key differences. Hmm. With romantic attraction leaving individuals wanting to change their life for their partner, being infatuated with them, and becoming possessive. Now, I'm kind of told that I'm, that I have a problem. Or that some of these people are told they have a problem, that they have commitment issues. They don't want to change for others, a selfish, some kind of selfish, you know, they're incomplete. Hmm. Sounds, sounds patriarchal to me. Thinking about these ideas is a useful exercise for all of us, yet they also add confusion to an orientation that's poorly understood to begin with. If I come out as gay, people instantly know what that means. Well, because there's been decades of activism, right? Whereas if I come out as asexual, nine times out of ten, I'll have to explain. Well, that's how it starts, baby. Other challenges abound. As Chen points out, because the movement is young, most out aces are young people not yet in positions of power. But who says that when you're young that you'll be in power when you're older? Like, that's how it works. That's a very centrist way of thinking about power. It's like, yeah, of course, once you're old enough, you... You, you climb the ladder of, uh, of careerism and then boom, you're, you have, we have a new Congress with new values. Sure. Sure. Certain social, maybe social values can change in the manners of things, but not the economics. Never the economics. Or maybe, maybe the economics. Maybe there'll all be social democrats, you know. Oh yeah, you know, we need a green new deal. It's going to be completely watered down, but no, no, no. Okay. Different issues but something to keep in mind as super important. Uh, when many people envision asexual, they're thinking of an androgynous white male. Think Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang. Hate that show. But as a black female model, Benoit is taking on these stereotypes. She has more than 33 grand on Instagram followers. Ooh. Benoit has spurred into activism because she couldn't relate to aces in the public eye. Oh, she couldn't relate to any aces, any others that are in the public eye. You know, there's a lack of representation from her end. I thought, I can't sit here and complain that I don't see black asexual people if I'm black and asexual, and I'm not really talking about it. She's, she is, she says, a person of direct action. Yeah. As well as co-founding an asexuality day, which will be held for the first time April 6th during London Pride, uh, giving university talks and creating social media accounts on what an asexual looks like, which, of course, can be... Any in many shapes and sizes. Let's skip to the bottom here. I'm in the last third. 
So going back to Jay of the AVEN network, he's optimistic about the future given the prevalence and energy of younger aces and thinks that in time, dating and sex will no longer be seen as the only valid path to intimacy and human connection. That it will, and this is kind of to me, I'm viewing this as a breakdown of patriarchy. I'm saying like this is third wave feminism done good. That it will be more common to say raise a child with your best friend whether or not you're asexual. You know, like actual commune villages <laughs> or, uh, you know, tribal life. This could have a momentous impact on people of all orientations by showing that a life filled with close friendships can be meaningful and satisfying and enough. Aces promise to allay one of humankind's greatest fears, that of being alone. Being sexually and romantically unattached does not in itself sentence you to a lifetime of dissatisfaction that everyone needs to find a mate. And this is the trap that maybe incels and toxic manosphere internet culture lead you down. There's this deep fear of loneliness if you don't play the game of engaging in dating and sexuality. And ace people embody and diffuse that fear. We have much to learn. May the 1% open our minds and lead the way. That's a different kind of 1%, isn't it? But it's also, it's a flip. Or, well, I mean, it's a flip of the number, but it's not a flip of how uh, maybe I think about, uh, I could talk about leftism in the same way. People are afraid of being politically disempowered or having no control in their life. I can't be an activist. I can't organize in a union that will disempower me. That will take away the, the, the health insurance I get from my employer or the income even. But there's another way. The, the one, the, the 10 percent minority of leftists have a perspective that can help. And we also have a platform. I'm going to wrap up, though, with something that is maybe a critique of all of this that I've read and how it's coming at things. But of course, I've been interjecting my own. How is this? How can this factor into leftist organizing or being a socialist? So back from my um, colleague, Sam, who's very much a strong Marxist materialist guy. Here's his take. This is a comment. Now, the, this is his, he's posting the um, Observer, the Guardian article I just read. Here's his comment on it. This is another one of those fascinating case studies in postmodern cultural politics. What, through a different ideological lens or in a different time period, would be fully acknowledged as a countercultural movement gets instead portrayed even by its members and activist promoters as apolitical or something to naturalize, something natural, as opposed to being something that's social. This is clearly a countercultural movement pushing back. And this is his this take. And I do as too. I, I agree. This is a cult, you know, being asexual, being aromantic, marrying your platonic, your best friend. This is clearly a countercultural movement pushing back against the hypersexual and pornified depictions and performances of gender and sex. But instead of confronting it head on with critique, it instead seeks to, in true postmodern fashion, reject all larger and collective narratives and produce an apolitical and atomized or individualized social space where a still normalized hypersexual or a sex positive culture can coexist alongside an asexual one. So it's like kind of maybe put in a feminist lens, you know, instead of taking on the patriarchy or taking on capitalism, we choose to run away or reject. We reject it, 
but we like seek to find to make our own little bubbles of socialism or anarchism, non-sexuality, get away from that. But we're not fighting it. What would it mean to fight it? Well, I've discussed that in various episodes as far as fighting for economic freedom and economic justice in the form of unionization, form of organizing, definitely revolution, radical revolutionary activity. What would that look like in the sexual space? What would that look like in fighting porn uh, or pornified sexuality, the hypersexual, the commodified bodies? So socialists like myself and Sam say, well, we need to change the economy if we want to change these social relationships. It can't just be having a counterculture, but certainly He's definitely coming at this as a critique of counterculture isn't enough. You know, we had a counterculture in the 60s, hippies and all the others. And uh, when they failed to elect a presidential candidate on the Democratic line, I might add, they all went for the hills, back to the land. I'm going to build my little commune in the middle of nowhere, and I'll be free from capitalism. Meanwhile, the war on drugs rages on in black neighborhoods. And... uh Economic dislocation, the um, draining of the industrial base, you know, moving jobs to China. It all went apace with relatively little resistance. Not a mass movement, per se. There have been movements. There have been resistance. But it's been scattershot. It hasn't been a part of American politics itself. So here's a second paragraph where he does share that empathy here. While I certainly sympathize and agree with their dissatisfaction with hypersexualized and pornified gender and sexuality, this would be more politically useful and productive if it were tied to actual critique of social analysis, a la using Marxism and second wave feminism, and not the third wave. So there's like when it comes to trans ideology and whatever, this is like setting up a second wave feminism versus a third wave feminism. A third wave feminism being postmodern, late capitalist fully ensconced in liberalism. Naturalization is always a means of depoliticizing, you know, depoliticizing. To say that something is natural is to say that this isn't something we need to fight about. And that helps certain people. That helps the oppressed if they're oppressed for a particular thing. So if you normalize being gay, it really takes the burn of being oppressed. But it doesn't stop, say, getting evicted because you're gay. It doesn't, it doesn't give you those protections, labor protections, housing protections. It just makes it culturally acceptable. That's been the success over the last of my lifetime. But the economic justice is missing. All identities and subjectivities are social and they're cultural in origin. Politically, we should be challenging, naturalizing discourses in all social realms building a movement that strives to abolish all arbitrary and imposed categories, building human beings around egalitarian and a decommodified social relation, a.k.a. socialism. So this isn't to negate everything I've been reading this whole two hours, but it's something to kind of layer on that we have all these categories, and especially when it comes to Arrow and Ace, they're, they're culturally created. This is something, you know, that's what's new about it. 
But we need to fight for the, you know, different material conditions. We need to fight for housing justice. We need to fight, you know, and these, and these things can all intersect together. You know, this, um, the model is an arrow, you know, an arrow ace activist, but she also needs to be a socialist. Everyone should be. Everyone who's not a corporate business owner or a corporate stooge. But even the corporate stooges uh, are not uh, hopeless. They should have solidarity with their fellow workers and all that stuff. So let's go to the end. My friend is listening. It's an important skill that we all need to do, and I plan to listen to your feedback. Please give any constructive ideas or what you maybe want me to talk about, stories and topics you'd like to hear. I'm on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and others. This program is made as part of an independent community radio station. You can help us materially. You can help me materially on LibrePay and Patreon. It's three left show. But the best way to help is to show your interest and contact me. Let me know that you're listening. It really helps me. 